There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Second hour of the show, we've got to look forward to plenty coming your way in just a little while. We'll have a poll qualifying for uh, the British Grand Prix. Uh, from Silverstone. Who's been performing down there? Yeah, tell me what I can tell you. It's been the Ferrari show in the UK. It's uh, Charles Leclerc, and it's quite interesting to see how this uh, young man, of course, born and bred in Monaco, is performing. And my big question is now, I think it must be quite a difficult time for Ferrari, because last week at, in Austria, we saw him got out on the final lap by uh, Max Verstappen, but he has really been performing a lot better than Sebastian Vettel. And I'm wondering if Ferrari are maybe looking at making him the number one driver. Anyway, what I can tell you is Leclerc is currently fastest at 1 minute 25.905. He's followed by his teammate Sebastian Vettel. Lewis Hamilton is in third position. Paul Gasly of Red Bull is in fourth. He's followed by Max Verstappen, of course, which did win in Austria in fifth position. And then we've got Valtteri Bottas of Mercedes in sixth. So uh, at the moment, it's the Ferrari show in Silverstone. That was in a P3 session. And of course, qualifying will be kicking off at 2 o'clock UA, uh, sorry, UK time, which of course is a 5 o'clock UAE time. Uh, 55 minutes until the start of the women's singles final at Wimbledon. Serena Williams taking on Simona Halep. We'll have more details on that one for you ahead of the start of the game at 5 o'clock. Let's go to the world of... Um, well, let's go to the world of golf, but not, though, before I brought you up today was what's happening in the Netball World Cup, because uh, suffice for us to say that the Netball World Cup got underway yesterday uh, over in Liverpool in England. Teams from all corners of the globe are descending on that for the Netball World Cup. Uh, results from earlier today, Australia beating Zimbabwe, 73 points to 37. North Island, Northern Ireland with an important victory against Sri Lanka, 67 to 50. New Zealand thumped Barbados, 78 to 25. And Malawi beat Singapore rather convincingly 87 points to 38 coming up a little later on six o'clock this evening England against Scotland then after that Uganda against Samoa Jamaica against Trinidad and Tobago and then South Africa taking on Fiji at 8.25 this evening golf golf well we're all underway with day three of the Scottish Open yeah. which of course all eyes are really focused on Northern Ireland of all places for this week upcoming on Thursday it's the 148th edition of the Open Championship at the very beautiful Port, Royal Port Rush in Northern Ireland. I'm going to bring you the scores from the Scottish Open very shortly, but one man, of course, is delighted that the Open is going to be in Royal Point Rush. Who you ask? Well, of course, it's Roy McIlroy. It might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I don't know. You know, it's, it's been, as you said, 68 years between Open Championships going to Portrush. It, it might be another 68 years until we get it again. Like, who knows? You know, hopefully not. Hopefully it's a huge success and it, it becomes part of the Open Rota, but I'm sort of treating it like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so... I still have to enjoy it. I can't put so much pressure on myself where, you know, I've made that mistake before at some tournaments and it just hasn't quite worked out for me. So I just, I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy the experience and, and, you know, take it in as well. Not not have my blinkers on the whole time and, and look to the right of me, look to the left of me, see all these fans, see all these people that come out and support me. And, you know, if, if I'm able to play some good golf, which I have been doing all this year, and give myself a chance, you know, use that energy and, and, and not, hopefully it's not a burden. You know, I, at some times during Irish Opens, I felt like that support has been a bit of a burden on me, and, and, but I, I feel like I've learned to, to use that energy in the right way. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's what I'll need to do next week. 
That's Roy McIlroy talking about the 148th Open Championship starting on Thursday in Northern Ireland. First time in 68 years it's been over at the Emerald Isle. Scottish Open Day 3 moving day at the Renaissance Club in North Berwick, Scotland. And I can tell that Roy McIlroy hasn't teed off in his third round yet. He's eight under par through his first two rounds in Scotland. But conditions look very good for scoring today because some players are going extremely low over in Scotland. The wind cannot be blowing at all. Andrea Pavan, the man from Italy, is currently nine under for his round today. He's finished at 62, um, which is a fantastic score on par 71. He's 14 under par, tied for the lead with the Austrian Bernd Wiesberger, Eric Van Royen from South Africa, also at 14 under par, and the Englishman Lee Slattery. Just uh, one shot or two shots further afield is the Iceman, Henrik Stenson, yeah. at 12 under par. And just looking down the leaderboard, Justin Thomas, the American, he's at 11 under par. And teeing off uh, shortly, the likes of um, Thomas Peters at 10 under par, Matthew Fitzpatrick also 10 under par, and Ian Poulter at 10 under par. So it's Andrea Pavan who shot 9 under today, round of 62 in North Berwick. He is tied for the lead with four other players. Oh, it's interesting to see former uh, British Open champion Stenson finding some form. It seems to be at just the right time. He's been in terrible form. Um, up to now, but uh, as you say, former uh, British Open champion, really, really looking good at this moment in time. Yeah, it's going to be f- fantastic because we've got so many players in, in good form. Of, of course, we talk about Brooks Kepka, how amazing he's been in the last two years. Obviously, uh, one of the premier sportsmen in the world in terms of what he's done in just golf in the last couple of years. He'll come into it. And of course, Lynx Golf always has its own intricacies. Which players have been gearing up for it? Which players suit the Lynx style? Will the wind blow? You know, and play it. This is a location where players haven't gone for many years, so it's going to be a different golf course, not not part of the normal open rotor where they sort of go around every four or five years and rotate around the courses. So it's going to be fascinating. Will the crowd get in behind Rory McIlroy? How will he deal with the expectation of of thousands of thousands of Irish fans there watching him play? One man I reckon who could do really well this week. He isn't playing this weekend, but one player to look out for always around the majors is the Englishman Justin Rose. He's been practicing uh, in Northern Ireland this week with, of course. Who better know the course? Darren Clark. And obviously they'll be enjoying themselves off the, off the course and on the course. But Justin Rose has been talking earlier in the last couple of days about Royal Port Rush. What type of course it will be? Well, we've found Justin Rose in the most romantic spot on the golf course. Uh, Justin, your first looks and first impressions of the course. Yeah, I have the opportunity to be here, obviously, early. Um, and it's a great place to be hanging out. Um, amazing golf course. I mean, I've heard so much about it, but never been here. Until you see it with your own eyes, you you can't really get an impression. But, uh, yeah, it's lived up to everything that the boys have said. And obviously, like this view, like you say, it's pretty yeah, special, isn't it? I mean, uh, very rugged coastline and gorgeous golf course, but demanding golf course, a proper golf course. And let's look off the course. Obviously, there's a lot of fun to be had and lovely little port rush. Uh, you've been yeah. seen checking into the harbour bar already, I notice. He had to do it. Apparently, you know, you got to drink the Kool-Aid when you're here. You know, uh, when in Rome, is setting all those good old cliches. Um, but yeah, Clarkey, obviously. Just watch your back there. Oh, speaking of Clarkey, he's uh, he's about to swing away. Darren Clark, paying host to everyone. He just can't get away from the camera at the moment. Slick new haircut. Four. Um, but yeah, obviously Portrush is going well. Yeah, it's going really well. Obviously, I think that's, that's part of it. You know, when you come to prepare for these tournaments, you want to try and enjoy it. And if you can't enjoy the run-up, then, you, you know, once tournament time comes around, you know, you lock it down, you're in bed early, you're doing all the right things. But 
you want to experience what the place is all about. So last night, Harbour Bar, a couple of Guinnesses, and yeah, absolutely. And uh, you'll be having a couple of more Guinnesses with England making the Cricket World Cup final against our mighty Black Caps too. They're doing great, aren't they? I mean, yeah, we're going head-to-head in the final by the looks of things, so um, that's going to be exciting. And yeah, you know, I not, not normally follow cricket closely, but my little boy started playing cricket for the first time this term at school, so he's gotten a bit more into it, which has given me more reason to follow it, so we can have a bit of banter. All right, well, I'll be, uh, I'll be keeping the banter up with you and, and the sledging, but jump on the right. team, mate. We'll watch your shot and enjoy the day. As I said, he'll be a little bit flustered. Looks like a nice little eight on. Oh, a little baby fade. Oh, that's dancing. Well, looks like Rosie's in good form. Keep an eye on him. This is The Grill, live from Kicker's Sports Bar, where the game is always on. Uh, talking of games that are on, the Tour de France is very much on at the moment into the second week of competition. Uh, yesterday, stage seven, it was Dylan Grunigan who claimed the first stage win of this year's Tour de France. Uh, Giulio Ciccone retained the leader's yellow jersey after stage seven. Defending champion Geraint Thomas finished safely in the peloton to remain fifth overall. This is how stage seven went. A much flatter stage on the menu for day seven after yesterday's gruelling slog at La Planche de Melfi. But it's still a long old day in the saddle. At 230 kilometres, this outing between Belfort and Chalon-sur-Saône was the longest of this year's race. Two familiar faces in the day's breakaway, Joanna Fredo and Stefan Rossetto, who've already clocked up over 200 kilometres out at the front on this tour. The peloton had in the gap yawn out to a maximum of five and a half minutes, setting a rather leisurely pace in the first few hours of racing. But danger is never far away on the Tour de France. A nasty crash here for TJ van Garderen, who'd already dropped six minutes on the GC favourites yesterday. The sprinters' teams keeping a close eye on the two men out at the front, but this one was always going to finish with a bunch sprint. Bahrain Merida leading out Sonny Colbrelli at the intermediate sprint, just 33k from the line. The Italian ahead of fellow stage contenders Peter Sagan, Elia Viviani and Michael Matthews. AG2 Arle Mondial then catching out a couple of riders with a sudden burst of pace. Dan Martin, Nader Quintana and Wat Van Aert having to scramble back on. Rossetto and Afreda were finally reeled in with a shade of a 12k to go. The sprinters' teams getting into position on the road into chalon sur -Sone. And it was Tekernic Quickstep who launched the final dash to the line. Here goes Grunewagen, Viviani, Ewan, Caleb Ewan, Peter Sagan. It's Grunewagen! It's Grunewagen! Well, Dylan Grunewagen winning stage seven just as he did last year. Caleb Ewan missing out by the finest of margins ahead of Sagan and Colbrelli. And a superb fifth place for Jasper Philipson, the youngest rider in the race at just 21 years of age. Yeah, the first day I crashed really hard, so yeah, I'm the next day I'm really fucked. But yesterday I feel me good again, and yeah, today my team works so hard for me, and yeah, we take the win, so I'm very happy with this win. Well, Grunewagen was tipped for big things ahead of this tour, but made a nightmare start with that crash on stage one. Mike Turnison got the yellow jersey on his teammate's behalf, although he took a spill today. But no worries for Jumbo Visma, because the boss was back. Grunewagen powering to his fourth win on the tour, and already his 11th of 2019. 
No changes in the GC. Giulio Ciccone keeps hold of his yellow jersey. And Trek Segafredo didn't really expend any energy defending it today. Julian Alaphilippe still just six seconds off the pace. Sagan extending his lead in green to 56 points. Sonny Colbrelli is now up to second place ahead of Viviani. Tim Vellens getting a chance to recover today after defending his polka dot jersey on stage six. He's 13 points clear off Ciccone. And the Italian also leads the youth classification, but it's Egan Bernal who'll be wearing white tomorrow on the road to Saint-Étienne as Ciccone, who's just extended his contract with Trek Segafredo, enjoys a second day in the Maillot Jaune. Today, though, stage eight, Macon to Saint-Étienne, 200 kilometres, one of those leg-zapping days, uh, which has a breakaway written all over it. No Category 1 climbs, but they uh, are approaching 3,800 metres of climbing, too hard for the sprint teams to control. Keep an eye out for Greg Van Armet, uh, the 2016 Olympic and Tour de Yorkshire champion who has won numerous one-day classics such as the Perry Roubaix. So they are starting off in Macon and then 200 kilometers later they end up in Saint-Étienne. The goal is that this site becomes a workplace for some and a place of cultural discovery for others. Saint-Étienne is an emblematic city of the Industrial Revolution. It's a town that was built around industry. It's a city of the 19th century. It's a town that has always maintained a link between art and industry. It was a forbidden city that was surrounded by high walls. And nowadays, as you can see, the site is entirely open. It still has its old touch. There still are industrial wastelands. What's the Cité du Design? It's both a centre of distribution of design through exhibitions, workshops and the organisation of the International Biennale. A crazy challenge between professors, students and the director of the school who launched the first Biennale of Design at a time when no one talked about design in France. It just wasn't a subject. Working on design in Saint-Étienne, like what is done at the Cité du Design, is doing it through customs and users. Saint-Étienne is a resilient city reborn from its ashes. There's a link between the history of the past and renewal. And it's going to carry on. It isn't over. So it is the Tour de France ongoing at the moment. And we'll keep an eye on progress of the riders in just a little while for you. Keep updated on that one. In the meantime, though, we're taking a look at some of the other big stories of the day. Don't get much bigger than the Wimbledon finals. Uh, women's final gets underway uh, in around about 35 minutes' time. Serena Williams against Simona Halep. Um, uh, Armand Sivyar was down at Wimbledon uh, this time last week. Uh, he's obviously been watching the action throughout. Serena, for you today? I think it's going to be pretty tough, to be honest with you. Uh, I think the, the way Serena's playing, it's going to be very, very tough to beat her. But I must say, Simona Halep during the tournament has, has really gone... She's, she's been very, very steady, Tom. And I think the key for Simona today, if she's going to beat Serena, you've got to try and get under Serena's skin. And she'll have to win that first set and try and put Serena under a lot of pressure. But I think the way Serena's been playing at this moment in time, especially her serve to me, has been fantastic. She's been moving very, very well. I reckon I would say Serena for number 24 today. Extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> the very fact that we're sat here talking about Serena Williams still in a final as well. You know, the way that she's sort of cherry-picking the tournaments that she's playing in at the moment can still, though, dominate the women's game in the way that she does. Tom, it's her power. I mean, you know, when you see, when you see her live and you just see the build that she's got on her, she's an extremely strong woman. And I just seem, to me, she just looks a lot fitter 
at Wimbledon this year than what she did last year. Of course, you know, she, she did have the baby, but I think she's been doing a lot of conditioning training. And to me, her movement has just been so much better in this tournament than what it has been in previous tournaments. And then, of course, she just backs it up with that power game that she's got. And as I said, if the timing's there today, it's going to be very, very difficult for, for Simona Halep to, you know, counterpunch, especially that first serve. So, yeah, as you say, remarkable. What is she? Also, late 30s at the moment that we're still speaking about, about Serena. But I think she definitely goes into this tournament as a hot favorite. We know what she can do on center court. She knows it well. She's won there numerous times before. And I think she's going to be very, very tough to beat. Fascinating match. You've got to think that Simona Halep's got to get off to a fast start. Absolutely. She wants to extend the points. She wants to extend the matches. She wants to play long sets and, and rely on her sort of advantage, her fitness advantage over Williams. And the matchup's interesting because you've got Williams, who's ultra-aggressive, big server, big powerful forehand will play a really strong baseline game where Simona Halep's more your counter-puncher. She's going to stay in rally, she's going to return serve and sort of just keep fighting and fighting. So it's a classical matchup between two contrasting styles, but you've got to give Simona Halep a chance. If it goes to three sets, then you back her fitness over Serena Williams. How's she going to last? She doesn't play a lot of tournament tennis. She tends to come in and basically play, almost play the Grand Slams and now nothing else. So it's very, if you think it's as long two weeks on grass, which is still quite a tough surface, but... The way that she plays her quick matches, quick points, a bit like Roger Federer in, in, in his sort of, you know, the, his age of his career, when you, similar styles in the way, Roger wants to serve well, have quick points, short sets, try and win in three, four sets. But if, 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 if Simona Halep today can extend the match, go take it into three sets, then you give her a puncher's chance of getting a result. But Serena Williams, you can't go. They've played each other 10 times. Williams has won nine of those matches between the two. 23 Grand Slam titles to one and seven Wimbledon titles to nil. So all the stats line up for Serena Williams. But again, let's wait and see. It, it is a fascinating lineup matchup today. have to agree with you, Arch. I think the, I think the big thing is Simona's going to have to make this game long if, and, and, and she's going to have to stay within the rallies. And, and to me, my biggest concern is can she really counter that power game of, of, of Serena this afternoon? I think it has to go to three, point, three sets for Simona to have any chance against Serena. But I think, as I said before, Serena goes in with a hot favourite. And as I said, if she wins today, she'll be making history. She'll be undoubtedly the greatest women's tennis player that has ever walked on this planet, equaling that greatest, Grand Slam record. Greatest tennis player of all time. Of all time. Of, of either sex, probably, statistically. You, it's hard to, hard to match and hard to argue against that. If she can, I think 24th Grand Slam title takes her um, equivalent with Margaret Austin, Court. Margaret Court. Yeah. In, a, in a slightly different era. I know it's a bit hard to compare that, that open era and amateur era, but arguably the greatest tennis player, tennis, tennis athlete of all time. And she's done really well to come back to after all the drama of the US Open, didn't do well in France. I mean, to come back and to be able to perform at that top level. And that's what you've got to give to Federer and you've also got to give to Serena. They have that ability to bounce back. They have that resilience and they keep the hunger. I mean, how do you keep the hunger to train as much as you train, to work as hard as they do, to go through everything they have to go through and then keep backing up again and again and again and to still want to win this one as much as you won the first one. I mean, that's what I really admire about these athletes and to stay at the top of their game for so long. It's just incredible. I heard a a great podcast about Roger Federer, obviously in his final uh, tomorrow, which we'll talk about in more detail in a little while, but uh, one of the things they were saying, talking to a lot of um, coaches, mentors, people that have been around Roger throughout his career, they said the one thing that strikes them about him is he just loves tennis. I know that sounds really sort of trite comment to say, but maybe that is the sort of he just doesn't love the game he loves everything about it he loves the practice he loves the travel he loves staying at hotels he loves all he loves coming down for breakfast in the morning he He just loves what he does he's a tennis geek i mean he he geeks out on tennis but you think about serena and you think about 
the, the US Open and such a debacle, such a huge drama that she went through. I mean, many people would have said, that's it, I've had enough, I'm not going to play anymore, you know? And she's had injury problems, she's had health problems this year, she's really had to struggle, but somehow she said, no, I want to get back in there, I want to get back to the top, I want to prove I can do it. And, and I don't know, she's interesting, Serena, she doesn't come across like Roger. She doesn't come across, she speaks about so much of the love of tennis. But the way that she comes back and the way that she does it and performs at that level, it's incredible. And on the other side of the coin, you have an absolute goat, not a greatest of all time, just a goat like Nick Kyrgios. And, you know, you've got people like Federer, people like Serena Williams, who are the true class of the great game of tennis. Kyrgios, I had a laugh at him. Apparently was frequenting some night spots in London just, before, fox, his, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just before his game against the Dallin. To me, and, and, and to what you're saying, Alex, it just shows me a total disrespect no, for no, the no, game. no, no. 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 You don't agree? No, no, no. We had this conversation last week. I think... Tom, I, 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 I honestly I think he's good for the game. I honestly think the game needs him at the moment. I honestly think that... Uh, love, love him or loathe him, the man has a God-given talent. And if he can do that, if he can compete with the best, if he can, if he can play on his day like he did uh, towards the latter stage of that game with Nadal, albeit came out on, on the... But if he can do that without a coach, and without that ethic of coaching and things like that, tennis needs it. It's become too, it's become too robotic. Yeah, Tom... Tennis might need him, but to me, in a respectful way. To me, serving underhand towards your opponent, trying to smash balls rules, into mate. his body. No, I, 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 I will not agree with that. And to me, the sooner Nick Kyrgios grows up, the better for him and better for the game it's of tennis. I don't, think it's gonna happen. Happen. I don't think it's going to happen Nick Kyrgios growing up. But it's really interesting. In Australia, we had Ash Party. You know, Ash Barty, I mean, that was such a great story for Australia. It was so heartbreaking to see her go out so early in Wimbledon because she got to number one. You know, Australian tennis had a number one. It's, you know, it's such a huge thing for Australia. And then poor old Ash dropped out. But she is, you know, she's class. Question for you, Alex. Who's more popular in Australia, Nick Kyrgios or uh, Ben Atomic? <laughs> Who's more popular, <laughs> you know, in Australia? I tell you, Nick Kyrgios, everybody in Australia, it's the same, I guess, with uh, Israel. What, what do Fallout. people think of him, though? What, what do people think of Nick Kyrgios? What's the general sort of sporting public, you know, appreciation or not non-appreciation of Nick Kyrgios? People are tired of Nick Kyrgios. I mean, if you're an Australian, if you're an Aussie out there listening in, please, you know, send us a message and let, let me know that I'm off-key here. But Australians are just tired of him. We're just tired. We're tired of all his shenanigans, all his going on. It's just drama after drama after drama after drama. And we're just over it. And that's what the thing with Ash Barty. She came from nowhere. She just works hard. She says the right things. She's, she loves the game of tennis. She's very respectful. In four years, she's done a remarkable job because she left to go and play Big Bash cricket. And, you know, and then she came back and decided, no, I'm really going to give this tennis a go. And she won the French Open. You does, know? Does, Kyrgios, does Kyrgios frustrate you as an athlete? Because I watched him play Nadal the other week. And when he's on... He's, he's got the game to beat the top three in the world, but he's just so inconsistent. He seems as though he doesn't care. He, his concentration's all over the place. If you think that he could be focused somehow, he's got the, got, he's got, he's got the top three or four ability you know, to be a top four or three or four player in the world, but does he frustrate you as an Australian fan? Listen, as an, as an Australian, I've given up. I actually don't care about Nick Kyrgios anymore. He's just, I don't have the interest in him. Do you know he played mixed doubles? He played in mixed doubles the next day and sort of played with this American player who he sent a a personal message to or something. And they got knocked out straight away too. They lost straight away too. So he lost both his first round matches. I mean, he couldn't even win a mixed doubles match. I mean, seriously, Nick just, I I don't know, I've just... He can he can go to another country. I, 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 I don't agree with I don't agree with, 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 with everything he does and the way that he does it. And I'm sure he's not you know the nicest. I've not met him, so I, don't, I wouldn't be able to say. But w- well, one thing we can't deny is he put bums on the seat. He is box office. People want to watch Nick Kyrgios, and that's why 
I've formed this opinion about the fact that tennis need him because whilst tennis is in a good place at the moment, let's have a look at it in a couple of years' time. When Roger decides enough, enough. When Rafa decides enough, enough. When Novak Djokovic decides enough, enough. There's not much coming up behind them at the moment to put bums on seats. That, that point I agree with you on, and I, th and I think especially men's tennis is in a very dangerous space, if we put it as such, because if the big three leave tomorrow, there's nothing really coming through. But to your point, Alex, Nick Kyrgios, coming back to him, I'm tired of hearing how good he can potentially be. How about he make up his mind and actually show us? Because if you look at the stats, he's won nothing. Yes, he's beaten Rafa Nadal on the odd occasion. He's beaten one or two big players, but he hasn't really won anything. So, mate, until he start winning something, we can actually start taking him serious, because I'm kind of of your opinion. I can't take him serious anymore. You know, he's going to come on to centre court. He's going to do a bit of shows. We're all going to have a good laugh. And, uh, yeah, he's going to be at the tournament the first round. And there's some good new Australian players coming through. You know, Milman's a good player. And these are guys who just get on and play the game. And I think that's what, that's what the Australian ethos is. The Australian ethos is, is you get on the game. You, you, sh you don't talk. You know, you show with your actions on the field. And, of course, we had a huge, massive thing in sport uh, last week. Uh, this week just passed in Australia. We had the state of origin, you know, with New South Wales beating Queensland. And that's the sort of thing that really inspires the nation and, and gets the nation's attention. And I think most people are just, with Nick, they're just very tired. They just, they've had enough. You know, they, they're sick and tired of reading about him. They just wanted to go and play tennis. If he wins, he wins. He doesn't, he doesn't. You know, it's like Jason Day. I mean, going back to golf, he's the sort of Australian sportsman that Australians love because he just gets out there, he plays, he doesn't make a big furore about it, and he got to world number one in golf, you know, which is a fantastic achievement. So the people who don't shout about it, who just do it, those are the people Australians really love. Absolutely, and, and Tom, to your, early, to your point earlier where we started this conversation about Serena, I think you got a very valid point. I get the impression it seems like she's kind of falling in love with the game again. I think there was a, a period where she had so much frustration and she, was, she, she wasn't performing the way she used to, because obviously... You know, she, 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 she went through becoming a mom, she got married, there was so much changing in her life and she was getting so frustrated and to me she kind of absorbed all that, kind of fell in love, realized what made her good from the start and as I say, back, back to winning ways again, back to dominating the, 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 the women's game and uh, as I say, it's going to be a fantastic final come 5 o'clock this afternoon. Um, one thing I am remiss not to have mentioned uh, is, of course, we've gone through the last couple of weeks without doing enough about the state of origin, which obviously is uh, great frustration to me because it, it, it means we don't get the opportunity of Mark Archer to come up with his iconic phrase. State against state, mate against mate. I missed it, actually. <laughs> I didn't watch a lot this year, but, um, yeah, I love the state of origin. I think if... if this, and I say this every year for the, since we've done the show, which has almost been a decade. I said, if you're going to watch, watch three matches of rugby league, in a year watch the state of origin and for me if you're going to watch any match of, of union or league series in the whole year you probably watch state of origin as well because it's it's such an iconic series um it's Listen. just it's just premier athletes and there's nothing better in my mind tom is two sets of australians absolutely taking <laughs> the, absolutely knocking knocking six senses out of each other. Well listen it was a great great series this year. Queensland out of the blue they weren't expected to do very well. They won the first they won the first match and congratulations to them. And the Queensland there's a lot of similarities between Queensland and the All Blacks. There's a pride in the jersey, there's an ethic, there's just a, a way that they play the game, the way that they go about things, that when they pull on that jersey, they just become a thousand times better. And, you know, you look at the, some of the parts of that Queensland team, not a great team, but they just have that all-black spirit or that ability to pull on and, and become the best they can on that day. So Queensland won the first game in Brisbane, then Australia, New South Wales came back from nowhere and slaughtered them in the second game, won by 32 points, massive victory, then went to Sydney. Everybody expected them to win. New South Wales were up 20-8 to eight with 10 minutes to go. Typical Queensland fashion. You know, they came back, 
drew it up at 20 all, looked like it was going to Golden Point, and then from absolutely nowhere, Blake Ferguson makes a long broke back inside to James Tedesco, who goes over to score, and, you know, New South Wales win in, this, in the last minute. So another really, it's just, Origin is just one of those things which just has the ability to just put on an incredible show, and there's a real hatred between New South Wales and Queensland. There is, I actually love Queensland, I, I spent a lot of time in Queensland, I love the place, but, you know, I'm a New South Welshman, and when they go out to play, I mean, I'm not even a big league follower, to tell you the truth, but when those Blues go out to play the Queensland, it's just the tribalness comes up in you, and you just want them to... <laughs> Queenslanders, you know. Alex, question for you: What is, what is the bigger rugby code in Australia? Is union bigger than union? Oh, listen. Uh, sadly, uh, rugby union. You know, and and, and <laughs> can you repeat that? Is, le- you know? is league bigger than union? Listen, I'm you know coming from Australia, and I love rugby. As you guys know, everybody knows here. Rugby union is my blood. I love the game with an absolute passion, and it's really, really sad. Rugby used to be a big game. Going back to the 90s, John Eels, George Gregan, Tim Horan, you know, Jason Little, go on and on about these Tempo, wonderful, wonderful players. Nick David Fogel, Michael Liner. You know, but it's so, so sad to see the way that Australian rugby has just disappeared. And these days, actually, it's not even in the conversation. The conversation is what's a bigger game, AFL or league? You know, because Union is just at, at such a low ebb. The, the force got, got destroyed, got taken out of Super Rugby. The Rebels never seem to be able to produce, and, and rugby's never really going to catch on in Melbourne. So you've got these very little pockets that play rugby. It's really interesting. At a club level, rugby union is still very, very strong, but there's such a disconnect now between the club level and the national level, Rugby Australia. It's, it's really, really sad. And I'll tell you the truth, league, to tell you the truth, isn't that big either. I mean, it's, it's strong. It's got their little... They've got, but it's really just Queensland and New South Wales that play. It's AFL that dominates the Australian sporting landscape and talking about great team, great sports to watch AFL is just an amazing sport to watch and it's been really really well run and it just continues to grow and get stronger every year and every year young league young union players you know they get plucked out of union and they go straight to league the, the, this is what I wanted to ask you and is that purely a financial thing is, is this why it's happening because especially the, 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 these, these young stars at schoolboy level or whatever all of a sudden, they, they, they've been phenomenal with Union. They might have played Australia under-19, played in the under-19 World Cup, and the next thing you see them running out for the Broncos or the Rabbitohs or whoever they choose to run out for. Yeah, listen, it's, it's, it's a terrible tragedy. Angus Crichton is a perfect example. Angus Crichton played for Scots College. Scots College is one of the great rugby schools in Australia, based in Sydney. Now, he came straight out of there, got plucked up straight into the Rabbitohs, and then into State of Origin. And now I think he's, he's playing with the Roosters now. Um, you know, and these are the great young athletes. When you go and watch a schoolboy rugby match, you will see there will be 12 talent scouts, one from every single rugby league club, sitting there ready to offer these union players a contract. And it's, it's really sad, so we can't even hold on to our talent. But you know why Angus Crichton went? Angus told me this one day. He said, why'd you go? You know, why'd you go? I mean, you know, rugby's your game. You've played it all your life. Why did you leave? You were at Scots. He said, listen, I went to the Tars, and the Waratahs told me, you won't play in the Super Rugby squad till you're 23. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say to the guy. He was playing State of Origin when he was 21. So I just think ma- rugby union has been managed so badly in Australia across all levels for so long. It's really, really sad. And, and, and the, sad, the strangest thing, too, is Australians think, because rugby is at a low end in its country, that rugby's in trouble worldwide. Rugby is not in trouble worldwide. The women's game is going through the roof. The men's game is very strong. The Olympics gives a whole thing. The, the sport of rugby union is extremely strong now worldwide. Sometimes Unfortunately, just not good in Australia. 
sevens is doing very well. Yeah, at the absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and I think with America, especially coming becoming so strong in, in sevens, it's even putting the game more on the world map than what you could ever imagine. And that's really exciting. USA second in both. You know, they almost won the sevens. Absolutely. I yeah. wish they won the sevens World Series. Congratulations to Fiji. The, the American women doing very well as well too. And you know, there's so much excitement building around 2020 for the Olympics in Japan. Our second seven series, our second Olympic Games. So there's so much excitement around rugby as, sport, as a sport. And you can say what you like about 15s and the sport, and maybe there's problems with the rules or issues, etc. But the sevens game is just, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch. And then in Dubai this year, of course, Kylie Minogue is coming along to <laughs> sing at the Dubai sevens. Which you know what? When another event. Went, you know when it, got, when it first got mentioned, and, and, and quite a few, but I was one of those people that sort of before it went, really, Kylie Minogue, they got that one wrong. I watched um, Glastonbury a couple of weekends ago, and uh, 90,000, Kylie Minogue got the biggest record, re recorded um, uh, uh, crowd ever at Glastonbury to see, to see an artist uh, in recent years. So we're not in a bad place. If you can get 90,000 at Glastonbury and be talk of the town at one of the biggest festivals in the world, and we got it down to the sevens, not bad. Yeah. I think so. And, and, you know, even if you're a league person or an AFL person, you've got to give sevens a try. It's fantastic. It's a wonderful, wonderful sport. It's just all action. It's great to see so many nations doing so well. So, yeah, I mean, just to, to round up the conversation, it's, it's sad to see what's happened to Australian rugby. And I can't see a way back. I mean, I honestly think there's a good chance Fiji will beat us in the World Cup, so we won't even make the quarterfinals. Our super rugby teams aren't doing great. A lot of our best players are leaving. Samu Karevi's leaving. Will Genie is leaving. Brent Bernard Foley's leaving. All these great players are leaving. So rugby is in a very, very low ebb. And also, you know, after the court case with Israel Folau, there may not be any Australian rugby left. So <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn our attention to the world of Formula One. Why? Because it is British Grand Prix weekend. Big Sunday of sport tomorrow, including... Uh, the F1 Bonanza down in the UK. Been to Silverstone Arch? You haven't got a microphone. I've nicked your microphone, haven't you? Uh, not for many years. I haven't been to a Formula One race there, but I have been to Silverstone before. You went to the opening race there in 19... Savia, <laughs> uh, so Silverstone? No, never never been there. Never been there. Would like to, would like to go. But uh, it seems like Formula One is really going into an interesting approach now. It seems like these street circuits are becoming so, so, so popular. In Cape Town, out of all places, uh, in the last two weeks, they've been chatting about an F1 race coming there around the streets of the mother city. So it'll be interesting to see how, how those talks do mature and if, the, if a race will be coming to South Africa. Back in the days when, when, when Bernie Eccleston started the whole Formula One bonanza, as we call it today, of course, they used to have a race up in Johannesburg. So Kailami. Kailami, there we go. Now, the big talks are that they're looking for a street circuit and it will be in Cape Town and apparently part of it is to actually go past or through the through the actual stadium where the World Cup was so anyway let's see if this will be stunning, happening be a stunning location Absolutely. Table Mountain the backdrop and obviously the, the beautiful setting that is Cape Town that will be a, a stunning race to see on TV great advertisement for the city Absolutely so yeah. let's see Maybe been to any Formula One circuits during your time? Well, I, I just like, well, I was in Monaco uh, recently, beautiful, beautiful um, uh, stadium, uh, city and a beautiful uh, location there. But just to go back to Cape Town, I, mean, I lived a long time in my life in Cape Town. I lived there for five years and absolutely, a uh, Grand Prix in Cape Town would be absolutely beautiful. I mean, and you, you think of going around Table Mountain, those locations, uh, going through the stadium, it, it'd be a fantastic event. And I, I hope that, I hope it gets up. Just have to watch out for those carjackings, right? <laughs> quick, I think quick. they're going fast enough. Yeah. Pit stops will be pretty quick. <laughs> uh, let's have a little look at uh, all things Silverstone. Welcome to the 2019 Formula One British Grand Prix. So here we are about to start uh, a lap of the Silverstone. 
circuit, maximizing the tires are quite cold at this point, so you're accelerating down the pit straight um, all the way up until seventh gear, then into eighth into turn one, flat out through one and into two, and then back to the left, braking hard for turn three, where you really need to carry a lot of speed through, but make sure you get back to the right for the, the next left-hander. Um, quite wide on as it's a bump on the inside. Get back to power, very, very important the speed to carry down the exit, then you're on a DRS, flat out all the way down to Brooklands. It's very, very bumpy at this point, and the wind's up against you, so you can break, break very, very deep. Um, then there's a late apex, and then you're running into, uh, this is now turn seven. Here you can stay quite wide and accelerate down to the old uh, cops corner. Uh, so this is the old pit straight. It's very, very fast here. Picking your point is very difficult. Keeping the floor, the, the throttle down, and finding the right turning point is very, very difficult at that speed, but it's, it's awesome. Then you come into the Maggots Beckets, which is again flat out, then you're lifting a little bit for turn 12, then back on the gas through 13. Um, it's all incredibly quick. And then we're going down the hangar straight, um, down towards Stowe. You can see the fans in the background there. You tack this corner, you've got a big headwind, so you can carry a lot of speed through because the car's got maximum downforce and the car really holds the road, road amazingly. Coming to the last corner, I think it's club. Um, the rear tires are hot, so it's really about trying to keep what you have and, and not be too greedy. And you come across the line and hope you have pull. So that was Lewis Hamilton giving his thoughts uh, on all things Silverstone. It is, of course, a circuit that is steeped in history. Oh, what's happened? David's lost it, has he? It's Schumacher. They're both off. They're both out. Here they are. Schumacher on the left. Demon Hill on the right. Contact. Now there's going to be a big, big argument about that. Damon Hill will say, I was close enough to get through on the inside. Schumacher will say, in no way were you. We've got a lunatic on the track, down the hangar straight, 160 miles an hour, the cars are doing as they come through there. What on earth are you doing? And uh, luckily then the marshals have got to him now, safety car deployed and uh, outrageous. Raikkonen struggling. Well, Raikkonen behind oh, he's got a he got a puncture? He's got a puncture, front left. Sebastian Vettel's gone off and maybe it is getting slippery. He's got a puncher too. What is causing these punches? Both Ferraris struggling. Apart from my idea, but I don't know why. It's just somebody went. So, not, not really many ideas what happened, but I guess there's some analysis will go. Don't want to see what happens. As Jody Schechter exited Woodcote Corner, the McLaren got away from him. Vainly, he waved his arms in warning, but the gesture was pointless. It was the worst mass collision in Formula One history, and eight cars were eliminated. And yet only one driver, Andrea Dianovich, was injured. We think a stop and go penalty from Michael Schumacher. He's in the pit lane. Schumacher, Schumacher in the pit lane. In. So, well, this oh, that means he'll win the race because he crosses the start-finish line. 
he crosses the start-finish line now, I believe, to take his penalty. But the race is over, surely. How did you make the decision to come in on the last lap, which meant, in effect, that you won the race in the pit lane? The point was I got a sign then on the pit uh, wall uh, with an arrow to come in. And I thought, well, maybe we have a fuel problem, we have to put some fuel in. But I wasn't thinking of anything uh, like that. This is The Grill, live from Kickers Sports Bar, where the game is always on. Game on down here at Kickers. We'll have qualifying for the British Grand Prix for you. We've got the lady, women's uh, final at Wimbledon getting underway in the next 15 minutes. Uh, we've got the stage uh, eight of the Tour de France ongoing. And we have got the small matter of a Cricket World Cup final tomorrow. Mark Archer, a new name will be etched on that famous trophy. Will be indeed, of course. Uh, England last played a final in 1992. Hot favourites at home, playing at the home of cricket at Lords, taking on New Zealand, who were, of course, defeated by Australia in 2015 at the MCG. Both teams have suffered three losses going into this final. Of course, England were beaten by Sri Lanka, Pakistan and Australia, and New Zealand lost to Australia, England and Pakistan. So it'd be funny just to call the new, the new world champions a team that also got beaten by three teams in the tournament. That doesn't happen very often in sport. One man that knows plenty about World Cup finals, he was there um, four years ago, Daniel Vittori. This is what Daniel Vittori had to say in the build-up to this final. I'm not changing anything, but I was slight concerned around Henry Nichols. He was off the field the whole time. Tim Southey fielded the whole time. So they may have a force change in there. They may bring Munro back in. Or they could even look at Tom Latham going up the top of the order and bringing in the likes of a, a Tom Bundle. So I think they'll want to stick with a settled lineup. And I think more often than not, we'll see two settled lineups going going against each other, but a really confident New Zealand outfit. Contrary to what Swanee says, I think they're expected to, to be there because they have played good cricket for a long time. Kane Williamson loves playing in England, and these numbers will tell you just why. The Kiwi captain, he's got an amazing average in, uh, uh, in of course, England, in an away country, in ODIs. He's got the best average for a foreign player in England, 22 innings, 1,363 runs, average of 71. Add to that the runs he's got this time in the World Cup, Tam. Uh, they've not been easy runs. People around him have been falling off, and he's had to sort of hold back, in a sense, you know, because of everything that's happening around him. Well, I think his record's like that everywhere. You could just <laughs> you could paste that uh, from copy and paste everywhere he's played. He's he's such an amazing player and he's been so successful. Um, and it's the way that he goes about this scoring. He, he assesses the situation as well as anyone can. And to your point around wickets being lost around him, he, he realises that and it, and it impacts the way he plays. And he, he looks to build an innings. He looks to attack when he requires. If the team's on top, then he'll go even harder. If they need him to pull back, then he, then he has that gear as well. So I think Williamson is the prize wicket. He's, he's one of the you know, best players in world cricket at the moment. And England will look to attack him because they'll see that he can be that, that foundation and that the likes of hopefully Guptill can score around Taylor mm. and two rounders and, and Nishan and DeGronholm. So look for an all-out attack, I think, when Williamson comes in. And a lot of planning, a lot of thought by the English bowlers on um, how they're going to dismiss him. That combination with Taylor, especially in their last game versus India, well, at the start it looked like what is Taylor doing? His strike rate is very low. You know, it might impact the team. At the end of the day, that turned out to be the difference between India and New Zealand who walked away. Yeah, and, and it's a lesson to everyone just to wait till the game's finished because I think the, the credit that we need to give those two incredibly experienced players is that they can assess conditions better than anyone. And they, they within themselves understood how hard that wicket was, how well India was bowling, and they, and they took a step back. And, and that goes to the experience and skill of the, of the pair of them, that they can see that. So if they get on a real flat one at Lords, expect them to go a lot harder, expect them to assess a 300-run score or assess whatever is appropriate and, and bat to those conditions. 
That was the former New Zealand left arm spin bowler Daniel Vittori. He, of course, played in the, in the last final in Australia, was part of the losing team that lost that final. One man that played for England last time they were in the final, also in Australia, when they lost to Pakistan in 1992, was Alex Stewart. Alex Stewart is now the coach of Surrey. He is the coach uh, of Jason Roy. And Alex Stewart reckons that Jason Roy is the man to watch in the final tomorrow. How good were Wokes and Archer? in a pressure pot moment to perform like that and that's where the top players really stand up so yeah. chris wokes i'm a massive fan of his he's almost the unsung hero of that england team he just goes about his business very quiet he's possibly the nicest man in cricket um and Apart then from jo- yourself well, I'm, I'm an ex now um but joffre archer as well deserves great critics there's a lot of talk once he's, his qualification was fast-tracked everyone knew what a good cricketer he was through ipl and t20 what he's done at sussex but they didn't know how they were going to perform on the international stage. Well, he's just got better and better game by game. He just looks as though he's born to play top-level cricket. Yeah, let's talk more about Archer, because as you mentioned, there was so much talk about it before the tournament. How much of a difference has he made to this side? No, massive. So Mark Wood can bowl at 90 miles an hour, but to have a second bowler to bowl in excess of 90 miles an hour, but with his control and with his skills, just adds to it. So... Once you get on top of an opposition, when you know you've got a Wokes, a Wood, an Archer, there's nowhere to hide. And they've hunted in a pack, they've maintained pressure on the opposition, and they've been rewarded. It's fantastic. What about Jason Roy and Johnny Bairstow at it again, once again, for England? I think it was a 124-run stand from them. Are they, or where do they rank in the best one-day opening partnerships. Well, the stats will say, I saw the stats that came up on Sky earlier on today, that their opening partnership is the best of anyone ever in 50-over cricket who've played or opened more than 30 times together. Um, but they two, the two of them complement each other. It's noticeable when Jason Roy was injured and James Vince came in that the partnership there with Bairstow didn't work for some reason. But these two, you know, they just get on so well. Uh, their styles of play complement each other. Jason Roy, I'm biased, he's a Surrey man. So I've seen him uh, emerge and mature from probably the age of 15, 16 into this world-class player. And we'll see him in the Ashes. Don't worry about that. He'll be opening the batting uh, for England in the Ashes as well. But the two of them, again, there's no breathing space. They just dominate. And once you can get on top of a, of a new ball attack, that is so key because everyone's trying to get early wickets. They haven't lost early wickets and then just smash it everywhere. It's easy with the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? But it was pretty darn important that Roy overcame that injury, wasn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. It, it just shows that you hate singling out one player yeah. that can make such a big difference sure. in any sport. But it's so obvious with Jason Roy and that team that the opposition... He can put fear into that opposition straight away. And he's done it in a very mature way this tournament. You know, so I've seen him develop over the years. Uh, but now he understands his own game. He understands how good he is. And also he's not going to chuck it away, which, uh, which is great to see. A lot of chat about Jason Roy and the Ashes, which is one of the things that we'll be talking about uh, in the coming weeks, just around the corner. Is he, I mean, uh, a bit, well, there's a lot of shy about Roy opening for England in the Ashes. But who's he going to open with? Good question. I, I think due to the lack of English batsmen who want to bat in the top order, in the top top two, open the batting, I think he'll play by default. And here's a guy that doesn't doesn't open the batting in red ball cricket for Surrey. He bats five in four-day cricket, albeit he's not even played that much four-day cricket recently. But I think he's just got... He looks like to have BMT. He looks to be a guy that has big match attitude that will probably be a better test match cricketer than he is first-class cricketer. He looks to have the game. I mean, Australia will target him, though, because you, you can't hide in test cricket. You've got to bat for long periods of time. They'll find your weakness, and Jason Roy has some, 
and they'll just work on it and work on it and work on it. So it will be an interesting um, experiment I by mean, England. But who else do they have? Burns and these guys and, and, and uh, the left-hander, Ke- Kenton Jennings. Yeah. They just haven't. They haven't. They haven't. They haven't performed. They haven't. They haven't done. They haven't given chances time and time again, and they haven't done the job. So, Kennings maybe will play. Maybe with Jennings. Roy Jennings will play with Roy. So I don't know. I think I, I, the only reason I ask that is that you look at the success the One Day team has had and the the culture they've built there, and I wonder whether England will slip into that thing of, you know, regardless of what happens tomorrow, looking at those eleven players and go, oh, well, could we not open the in the uh, Ashes with Johnny Berso? And Jason Moyes. Well, that's not a bad shout because obviously Josh Butler could keep wicket, and then to get them both in the team, Bearstow Be- could open in Test cricket. I think technically he's he's a good player, but again, that's it's red ball cricket. You, you know, the ball's nipping around first first session of a Test match is very much different than playing a 50-over match. So, but Bearstow is an option, and maybe Roy. Maybe that's the way they go. But that would be a possibly a mistake by the by the English selectors to get on too much of the hype between 50 over cricket they've got the other thing you've got to think about is it all going well for England tomorrow there's a good chance that they will win it'll be the first time England have won any kind of World Cup for how long I mean for many 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 years I mean probably since England won the Rugby World Rugby Cup Rugby World Cup 2003 three. so uh, you it's there'll be the ticket tape parades there'll be you know fanfare all around everyone the place. will be knighted you yeah, know absolutely. The, the coaching the 20 people in the coaching staff they'll be knighted they'll you know there'll be MBEs everywhere OBEs and if then, you're in the ground watching you'll probably get some sort of title Tom and, it's and all then happening it's, and then it's going to be really hard for those players then to suddenly switch on where you've got Australia now going off to play like a little trial game between themselves, seething with rage that they got knocked out at the semi-final stage. So they're going to be absolutely breathing fire, ready for blood when that first Ashes test starts. So it's a really hard thing for England because it's going to be a massive achievement if they win this World Cup. There's going to be celebrations as they should. And then to only then have to suddenly switch back on and play really, really tough test cricket is, is going to be a real challenge for them. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because you were mentioning about a couple of players to come into the Aussie squad. Yeah, and we'll, I'm assuming the Aussies are just going to stay now, are they? They won't, yes, they won't yeah, go back Yes, yeah, they're home. there. And they've also, listen, they've been very smart about this. They've actually got a second team over there now already. Australia Ray's been there and they've been playing some matches again. And there's actually going to be an internal trial. So it's going to be Australia versus Australia Ray. Uh, so these World Cup players coming back in to see, p- get people to battle them out. Could play that match in Earl's Court. Uh, get a bit crowded. <laughs> <laughs> and you and, and a player like Marcus Harris, you know, who's somebody ha- we haven't spoken a lot about. He's been really, really good coming into the Australian team. He's going to play with uh, or open. You would imagine with David Warner. You got Steve Smith as well there too. Labashane, uh, Labus as we talked about as well. The question is, who do they play at six? I mean, Travis Head will be there at five, but do they bat Matthew Wade or do they give you know Alex Carey a go? Should Alex Carey have a go? His red ball form, I must say, is not so great. But another thing too that Australian has well uh, in the Sheffield Shield, they started to play with the Duke ball this year. Yeah. They were so getting ready for the Ashes that they actually got the Duke ball, which they'd be using in the Ashes, and they put it into the Sheffield Shield. So Australian cricket has made a lot of mistakes over the last few years, but you've got to give them credit. Justin Langer, in this new era, has done a really good job over the last 12 months riding the ships, and they've made a lot of good good decisions in getting ready for tournaments and also in the preparations that they've made. So I'm confident they'll perform well in this Ashes series. England have also been smart, though, because the key, I think, for for, for England is probably James Anderson. If the ball's swinging, he's fit. And can he play five test matches? But they've been wrapping him up on cotton wool. Stuart Broad will come back into the team. And then you add the pace of Joffrey Archer. And they may rotate those three players. You've got the likes of Chris Wokes, who is a very handy English-style seam bowling in those conditions. Lengthens the batting order. Will Adel Rashid play? Does Moen Ali come back into the team? England have some depth as well. They're going to have some selection dilemmas. Stuart Broad. Stuart Broad. So they're going to have selection dilemmas on who they leave out of the team as well. And, you know, Bearstow, 
Butler, Stokes for me, the best pound for pound cricketer in world cricket across all three formats, bat, bowling and fielding, is, is, is a wonderful addition to come in batting at six and Just a point on, the, on, uh, on, on um, uh, Jamie, Jimmy Anderson uh, injured. So doubt for the first test. Torn hamstring. Uh, I'm not sure about if, if it's a serious injury. I think no, it's really? just a little niggle. I think is it's it? Jimmy Anderson niggle. Okay. If it, if it was a serious injury. Mind games. Is if it? it was a serious injury, I think we would have heard a little bit more about it. Mind games. Is it? Oh, absolutely. You no always got to have that. mind games. But that's one, ashes. Of the, that's one of the great things about the Ashes, isn't it? You have those sort of mind games. But uh, it'll be it'll be a great series, and it's a it's good as you were saying. So much wonderful things happening in the UK in sport at the moment. To see the Ashes follow on so closely after Wimbledon, after the World Cup. It's, it's going to be a great occasion for sport. Uh, we'll take a short break. When we come back, more sport live here from Kickers. We're down here at Dubai Sports City. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.